You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. I am stoked for this. I am ready to be back up here. I've been off for a couple weeks. Thank you, by the way. Thank you for, for letting my family go on vacation. I know that sounds silly, but, but I'm not joking when I say how, how grateful I am to be part of a church that, that values God-honoring Sabbath and rest, and the fact that you guys not only encourage that in your leaders, but you actually like graciously hold us to account in that. It's a really, really beautiful thing. But I am glad to be back. I have been eagerly anticipating jumping into this passage today. And so um, I'm not, I'm not going to give much ado to this. I want to get into it. So will you pray with me? And then we're going to jump into Mark 9. Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of this morning, God. Thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your church. God, we ask this morning as we, as we humbly engage your truth through your word, we ask that you would you would speak powerfully, you would speak in presence to us today. Holy Spirit, we ask that, um, we ask that the, the words of our mouths, the thoughts and our hearts as we engage your text, they would be pleasing to you. And God, we ask that um, just as we spend this time here this morning, um, that we would, we would leave here today having spent the morning with you. Jesus, we love you, trust you for this, we pray in your name. Amen setting a timer so I don't go over. (laughs) All right, we are in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be starting in verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, we uh, we have Bibles at the end of each row, our house Bibles. We would encourage you to grab one of those. We really, really care about the importance of the Word of God. If you do not have access to a Bible, please, please, please grab one of those, take them home. Or better yet, talk to one of our pastors. We'll give you one that is less ripped and stained. And, uh, and, and we just, we want you to have that. So we're in Mark. We've been going through Mark for a while. If you've been with us, we've been in this, in this book for, for several months. We've worked our way up to, to chapter nine. We're past the halfway point and we're picking up in verse 30. The 30th verse of the ninth chapter of the gospel according to Mark tells us this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, Muhammad Ali. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. And this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I'm, 
I'm really excited for us to engage this text and hopefully engage this text with a heart of humility. And the reason I I say that is this. I, I believe just firmly that God has something to speak to us today. I believe that that God wants to speak to us firmly today out of this text about the way our hearts receive the least and what that means about our relationship to Jesus and our relationship to our God. And and, and I think we're going to have to slow ourselves down and humble ourselves a bit to actually hear this this morning. So I, I hope that you will join with me in that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk back through this text. We're going to We're going to pull out a couple historical notes. We're going to pull out a couple textual notes. And I think that'll give us some clarity on what Mark's trying to communicate here, which I think will give us some clarity on the bigger picture of Jesus and his message. And we'll end our time by referencing one of Jesus's earlier teachings, but from the perspective of one of the other gospel writers. So the story here, you have to remember, is we're we're jumping into a larger section of Mark that we've been in for a while. So this is kind of our textual note. Mark 8, 9, and 10 create this this kind of structured system where, where Mark is really intentionally and quickly moving us towards the heart of the entire book, which, if you recall... The, the, the genre of a gospel in the book, uh, in, in the Bible, these, these gospels, these are these books that are, that are the, the, um, the term, the actual term is a bios. And it's kind of like, imagine the great, great grandfather of what we would call a biography. And, and it's not a great, it's not like an internet, like they don't, they don't perfectly translate one to the other. And a biography today is meant to tell us the story of someone's life. But a bios in this day, rather than, rather than meaning to tell us the story of someone's life, is meant to summarize the heart of a person's mission the heart of their message. It's why uh, the Gospels spend almost no time on Jesus' childhood, and it's why a third of each Gospel is spent on like the last week of Jesus' life, because they're not trying to give you a a biographical image of his life. They're trying to give you this bios image of who was this Jesus, and what was his message, and what's the validity of it. And so in that sense, Mark has created this section that, that begins in chapter eight and goes eight, nine, and 10, where really he's just, he's, he's flourishing all these scenes together that are going to bring us to kind of the, the message wise, kind of the climax of the book in chapter eight. And they're structured around these three prophetic sayings where Jesus predicts his own death. And what you'll see here is that Three times Jesus predicts his death, and Mark gives us this formula where Jesus predicts his death, his disciples don't understand what he means, they do something really idiotic, and Jesus corrects their idiotic thing, whatever they did, in a way that clarifies the meaning of his prediction about the death. That, that's, kind of, that's kind of what we see here. It happens three times, 8, 9, and 10. And the one that the, when it happens in chapter 10, it really is kind of the bang, like the big boom of the book of Mark. And so I don't want to spoil that. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we're looking at the second one in this progression. 
There's three predictions. We've already read the first prediction. This is when Jesus says he's going to die, and when Mark declare, when, when Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, and, and Jesus gives this teaching about picking up your cross and following after me. This is the second one. The third one is coming, and it's going to be the, the big dog for the whole book of Mark. So again, we're, we're going we're gonna to touch on some of that, but I don't want to I don't want to steal the thunder from whoever's preaching that week. It might be me. I'm not sure. But anyway, we're in the second one. So Jesus, remember the story, right? So Jesus has traveled up far north of Palestine into this region called Caesarea Philippi, one of the more Gentile regions of Palestine, far north of Galilee, where in the Sea of Galilee, where he's been doing the majority of his ministry. In that setting, surrounded almost exclusively by Gentiles, Jesus gives the first prediction. I'm going to die. The Jewish leaders are going to arrest me and murder me brutally. And this is all connected to his disciples for the first time being like, so you're the Messiah, right? Like we've been dancing around it this whole time, but you're actually the Messiah, right? And Jesus is like, heck yes. And by the way, I'm going to brutally die at the hands of our religious leaders. And they kind of go, uh, do you, that's, that's not how that works, Jesus. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. That's not how that works, Jesus. You can't get all these guys stoked about you being the Messiah and then say that our religious leaders are going to kill you. That's not how that works. And Jesus just knocks Peter down a notch, right? Oh, you think that's crazy? You think it's crazy that the religious leaders are going to kill me? Well, guess what? If you want to follow me, every single one of you here, if you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and go be brutally tortured and executed by the Roman government. That's what it means to follow me. Anyway, I'm going. And that's how the scene goes. It's crazy. Because remember, the expectation of the day was that the Messiah would be another judge. Think book of Judges. Israel gets oppressed. They cry out to God for for help. God raises up a leader who has the Spirit of God upon him, and he raises up an army, and he overthrows their oppressors, and all of a sudden, Israel is Israel again. This is what the Jews of this day are waiting for. They're waiting for another Gideon. They're waiting for another Judas Maccabeus to overthrow the Romans, to kick them out of Palestine so that Israel can be Israel again and everyone can go, wow, that country is super cool. That's what they're looking for. And Jesus' response is, that's not how this works. I'm not going to overthrow this government. I'm not going to raise up an army. In fact, Rome's going to win. Rome's going to crucify me. And if you want to follow me, you'll have to get crucified also. That's how this works. And then he leaves. I love, by the way, that Jesus' next scene is he's like, hey, hey, Peter, come here. Let's go up on this mountain. This is what heaven looks like. And it goes like right into the transfiguration, right? Where Jesus just rips apart their understanding of what the Messiah will do and then takes them up on a mountain and shows them the glory of the kingdom and says, if that freaks you out, let me show you what we're actually doing. And he shows them the kingdom and they have no clue. Peter is so just like, uh, uh, we, we should set up tents. This is cool. 
Like that's his response. He has no idea how to process this. And so they're, remember, they're still in this area. We're still north of Galilee. They come down. That's where we have our scene last week that Pastor Matt took us through, which by the way, if you missed that, you should go on the app and listen to it. It was, it was really, really good. Um, they come back down. There's the scene where the father of the demon-possessed boy comes to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief, and, and that whole deal. And now they leave. They're making their way back down through Galilee. At this point, Jesus has finished his ministry in Galilee, and he is making his way toward Jerusalem. He's making this trek. He started way up at Caesarea Philippi. He's working his way down through Galilee and Samaria and Idumea into Jerusalem, where the final scenes of the story are going to take place. And so as they're walking along, Jesus brings it back up again. Hey, so real quick, you know, you know I'm going to get brutally captured and murdered and then rise again three days later, right? And everyone's just kind of like, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm just going to not say anything. They just kind of change the subject. And, and, and this part, when you first read it, to me it, it reads almost so crazy, right? These guys have been with Jesus, following him, sharing life with him for years now. And Jesus brings this teaching that is so radical, that is so breaking of their worldview. And they hear it and they just go, I don't know what to do with that. So they just keep acting like nothing happened. Right? Like, they just get, just kind of ignore it, and they're like, eh, we'll figure that out later, but I know I want to follow Jesus, so they just keep going. Beloved, I think there's so much hope and also terror in that for us. I, and I'm, I'm serious when I say this. Jesus doesn't let them get away from it. See, Jesus loves us too much to let us just ignore his world-changing call upon the life of his children. Amen. He loves us too much. How many, how many of you, like, even as I say that, you're like, oh, shoot, I have totally experienced God calling me and convicting me and challenging me to something difficult, and I just don't want to deal with it. So I kind of just keep living and pretending like he didn't convict me, call me, push me on that. We all do that. And beloved, Jesus loves you too much to just let you move past it. He's going to keep hitting you over the head with the same truth. He's going to keep convicting you with the same sin. He's going to keep pushing you in the same call until you submit to it. Because he loves you too much not to do that. How beautiful is that that that's our Savior? Then his grace, he just calls us over and over and over and over. It makes me think of the image of the hound of heaven, right? Where, where, Jesus, where, where God is, it's a poem, where God is pictured as a bloodhound chasing after an escaped convict, basically. Now he just is on your scent. And he's not going to leave you alone. He loves you too much to let you keep going. I think, I think some of us this morning just need to hear that, that this thing that God has been pushing you on, on and off, that this conviction, this calling on your life that keeps popping up every few months, every few years, that's not going to stop. You're not going to like convince Jesus that his plan for your life is incorrect. You're not. He's going to keep pushing you on that until you joyfully submit to it and find life in him. And so I don't know if that terrifies you or encourages you. Hopefully a little bit of both, right? So, so that's, that's what's going on. Jesus brings this back up. 
And they're, they're making their way down and they, they make this last stop back in Capernaum, which if you've been in this study with us from the beginning, you know Capernaum is kind of Jesus' home base. He comes back to Capernaum a lot. It's the city that sits right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in, in the region of Galilee. And there's this house. It's a really important set piece in the book of Mark. A lot of stuff has happened in this house. We've seen Jesus forgive sins and rebuke Pharisees and, and heal, uh, heal the sick in this home. We've heard the teachings and parables of Jesus given in the living room of this house. It's this set piece we've come back to a lot. And as we get there, and this is strangely like, this is the last time they're going to gather in this home. They sit down and Jesus is like, so what were you guys talking about on the way in here? And everyone just, oh shoot, he heard us. <laughs> Which you kind of want to be like, guys, he's God. He knew. He knew. <laughs> but it tells us, Mark interjects here, they were silent because they had been arguing over who was the greatest. Which how, how, how choice is that? Right? That Jesus has been teaching them, hey, everything you understand about the Messiah, I'm not Gideon. I'm the suffering servant. I'm going to be brutally tortured and killed for people that don't even respond to me because I love them that much. And the disciples are like, yeah, cool, cool. So anyway, I'm going to be his number one. Like when the seat's going, when it goes down, I'm going to be right-hand man. No, dude. And they're like back and forth. This argument, by the way, as, as like, you talk about just like bold people, this argument doesn't even get settled when Jesus shuts it down right now. It's going to come back a chapter from now, which is insane to me that these guys continue to have this conversation, but they do. They're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus is just like, you guys, that's not how this works. And in this scene, in this set piece, in this living room where Jesus has taught so many things and shown and revealed so many bits and pieces of the puzzle over the course of this book, once again, Jesus sits down with his best friends and he teaches and he corrects them. Oh, what a beautiful image. What a beautiful image that Jesus meets us in our arrogance and he meets us in our missing the point when he bluntly tells us this is what it means to, to, to partake in the kingdom. And we go, yeah, but I really like me. He gently sits us down in the same living room and teaches us the same things over and over and over again. What a good God. And he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And then I love this scene. He grabs a kid. And think like toddler. He grabs a little toddler and he pulls him into their circle. He's holding him. He's hugging him. And he says this. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. My goodness. I, I love this word, receive. It's, it's this Greek word, dekomai. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't read Greek. But it's this word, it's this word dekomai. That, that receive is like, receives a good translation of it. 
But there's, there's a nuance there that's not quite captured in our word. Think, think receive, right? Like receiving a gift or receiving someone into your house. But, but nuance it more towards this idea of welcome and gratefulness. Think of the way you would welcome your best friend into your home for dinner. Think of the way you would receive a precious gift from an honored mentor. Right? That's the, this word is, is packed essentially with relational connection. This isn't just like, oh, someone knocked on your door, you, you invite him in, it's actually the guy who's trying to get you to spray your yard for bugs or whatever. No, no, this, is, this, is, this holds with it the idea of this loving, joyful welcome and reception of, oh, come in. Be here. Be with me. Be served by me. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so grateful for this moment. That's, that's kind of packed into this word. And so he says, man, if you want to be first, you need to be last. You need to serve everyone. And he grabs this, this little toddler and, and pulls him in and hugs him and goes, man, if, you, if, the, if that's what you want to do, if that's the road you want to go on, receive one like this. Welcome and serve and love and joyfully accept a kid like this. And in doing that, you receive me. And when you welcome me, you're welcoming God the Father. It's a beautiful picture, right? But there's a little more packed into this. This word that gets translated kid, child, is paedon, paedion. And it's a word that means little kid, infant or a toddler. And there's no way to say this without just being blunt about it. Uh, toddlers and little children weren't thought of the same way in this world as they are now. And I know, I know, I know some of you at home right now have your Christian bookstore mug with like children and arrows in the quiver and you're like, no, the Bible like loves big families and little kids. Like children are precious. They're a gift from the Lord. Yes, in a sense. And that sounds hard to say it that way, but it really is true. You have to understand, in a world where infant mortality rates are insanely high, insanely high, in a world where most people are sustenance farmers, yes, children are a blessing when they grow up and get married and have more kids and work on your farm. Because in this world, your kid doesn't turn 18 and go to college and move away and become an electrical engineer on the West Coast. In this world, your kid grows up and gets married at 15 and starts having kids, and they add an addition onto your house, and they live in the backyard, and they help you farm, and now you have six employees instead of three. That's how this world works. And the unfortunate side piece of that is that little kids... Infants and toddlers are below worthless in this society. And that sounds awful. And I don't mean that parents didn't love their kids, but parents looked at infants and toddlers with this mindset that kind of went, eh, we'll see. We'll see. I don't want to get too attached. I mean, you know, there are wolverines out there. Really, there are. And so, in this culture... In Jewish culture, in this day, oftentimes kids wouldn't even be named for several years. You're like, that's super weird. It's very true. Because you just don't know. You don't know what the kid's going to be like. You don't know if he's going to be healthy or sick. You don't know if he's going to be 
obedient or a jerk. You don't know if he's going to live. And so you just kind of wait. And the result is that young children, pedias, are worthless. The word is actually genderless. It doesn't even differentiate if it's a boy or a girl, because at that point it doesn't really matter. We'll wait and see. When they hit puberty, we'll decide if they're valuable, right? And again, that's, that's, that's hard for us to hear. We love kids. We value kids. And I'm not trying to say the parents of this day didn't love their kids, but you have to understand, in a world where you live that close to death and suffering and curse, love looks a little different. So Jesus grabs this toddler who, in that world, at, depending on what age they're at, wouldn't even be worth enough to be counted amongst your property yet. Children were counted amongst the property of their father, but not till they reached a certain age and only if they had a certain level of health. So we don't actually know if this kid was like worth enough to be property yet. He might have just been like a thing that wanders around the house and eats. We don't know. But Jesus grabs this kid and pulls him into the circle and hugs him and goes, if you want to be the greatest, then welcome one like this. Invite them in with joy and gratitude. Serve and love them. And when you do that, well, you're welcoming me. And when you welcome me, you're welcoming my Father. Jesus paints this picture here that, that totally inverts the apostles' discussion amongst themselves. Right? They have this image of the Messiah as one who will regain and recreate the authority and power of this people, Israel. We will be something again. We will be on the map again. And whoever's close to the guy, they'll be high up the totem pole. And Jesus just says, that's not how this is going to work. It's not like that. In fact, it couldn't be farther from that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. This kingdom works by lowering yourself down as low as you go and loving and honoring and serving things that this world deems worthless. So in the first message, Jesus says, hey, we're actually not going to win. We're going to lose. And if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you don't get to go defeat the enemy army. You get to go be executed by them. And this time he says, actually, we're not going to be great We're going to be lower than low. And we're going to love and honor and serve the worthless. This is the image Jesus gives to his followers of the kingdom life. And beloved, I would say this is the challenge Jesus hands to his church today. The kingdom is the same kingdom. It's the same work. It's the same call Not one to comfort and wealth and excellence and power and authority, but one, a call to sacrifice and to serve and to love, to pick up and build up others. And so obviously in our world, we don't think of toddlers that way. Toddlers are precious in our world. I've got one myself. I'm pretty much a fan. (laughs) Most of the time. But it does beg the question, who are 
Who are these people in our world? Who are the Padeon of our world? Who are the people that this world has deemed worthless? That, that they're so close, that their lives are so entangled in the effects of this world-destroying curse that we have lost any sense of their value. Who are these people? I feel like I could, uh, feel like I could list if we wanted to, right? Like we could sit here and we could say, well, yeah, I mean, like there's unborn children in refugees or racial minorities or the poor or kids stuck in the foster system or pedophiles or terrorists or convicted criminals rotting in prison or the mentally ill or homosexuals or porn stars or the homeless of our city or the transgender community or drug addicts or drug dealers or corrupt politicians or people dying alone in nursing homes. We could list plenty of people that our world has said, well, this person is pretty much worthless. But that, I feel like that doesn't actually get at the point of this. Because I think the real thing Jesus is pushing us on here, and the real thing he's calling us to, beloved, is to ask the question, who have you deemed as worthless? Who is unwelcome in your home for dinner tonight? Who is unwelcome in your gospel community or in this church right now? Who would step among you and you would step back and you would recoil? Who have you over-identified with their affiliation to the curse rather than their image of God that is inherent in their person? And if, if someone specific like pops in your head right now, like that's... That's cool, you should weigh on that. But beloved, we cannot ignore the fact that this is, in fact, the way we live. I know that's painful to hear and to think about, but you know that is true. There are human beings made in God's image, and you give their primary identifiers, their affiliation to this cursed and broken world, rather than the Imago Dei that is deeper than their very bones. Correct? We all do this. There are people you hate. And we can sit here and we can say, no, no, I don't hate anyone. Okay, cool. Well, show me that. How does your life reflect your lack of hate? Seriously. How, does, how do our lives actually reflect that? How do our pocketbooks and our homes and our financial priorities, and our retirement plans, and our church communities, and our dinner tables, and our votes actually reflect our love for worthless people made in the image of God. Beloved, I, I would encourage us to, to think through this idea that perhaps Jesus' point in grabbing this child and embracing them and showing them to his friends and saying, if you want to be great, you should welcome one like this. Perhaps Jesus' connection to the idea that to welcome the unloved is to welcome me. To welcome me is God the Father. Perhaps Jesus is simply saying, there is no one who is unloved. 
and there is no one who is worthless. And that the only person who is great is God. And if you want to be the greatest, then perhaps you should dedicate yourself to worshiping and glorifying this God. And perhaps the most efficient way to worship and glorify this God is to give your full time and energy to fighting back the curse that is destroying his precious creation. And perhaps the most efficient way to do that is to meet precious human beings loved and designed and cared for by God and molded in his very image and loving and serving them regardless of what the world says about them. Regardless. I promise you that person exists in our community. They exist in our city. They exist in your neighborhood and your family in this room. I promise you They're human beings, precious human beings made in the image of God who right now are believing about themselves identifiers that are more connected with the curse than with their creator. It's happening. There are people who who live in self-hatred and live in denial of their worth, who live in ways that defame and destroy this image. And that kills the soul. And that furthers the curse. But beloved, God has called us to something different. To ask who is the greatest is to miss the entire point of the kingdom. God is the greatest. To, To even be on that mental train is totally missing the point. The point is that this is all His. And He wants it. And He wants it redeemed and perfected and brought from death to life. And beloved, He has invited you into that work. If you have been washed in the blood of Christ and you have realized that your identity is primarily as a child of God and not as a child of the curse, then you have been brought into that kingdom and you have been given authority and ability to go out and do that work. Come on. Come on. Why, why, why don't we live this way? Why would you not want to? Why would you not give everything to live that way? I mean, seriously. Francis Schaeffer famously, when he was describing the idea of the curse and sin and the destruction of sin and, and the idea of us being, you know, Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian guy, right? So reformed to the core. And when, when he talked about this idea of just like the destruction of indwelling sin, right? He used this image of ancient ruins. If you get to go and you get to go see some glorious Greek ruin, right? This thing that is, on the one hand, inherently glorious and precious and one of a kind. And on the other hand, completely and totally useless. Right? The, the analog I think of is if you like, if you're ever out like, I don't know, like hunting or hiking on someone's farm and you find just some 
Some like sick old like 50 Chevy that's rotting apart in a field somewhere. Someone's used it for like target practice for 15 years and it's got holes all down the side and it's like eight inches sunk into the mud. And the thing you're just like, man, that's cool. What a cool old car. And yet it's totally useless. You can't do anything with it. I had a friend at a previous church who bought, I, I don't know if there's any motorcycle guys in the room. I'm not really a motorcycle guy, so I'm about to slaughter everything I try and say. I had a friend at a previous church who went and found this Harley Davidson knucklehead, which is a thing apparently. <laughs> and it was a police model. had the light on it. He found it in some farmer's barn, just rotten to pieces, totally worthless. It actually, uh, the front fork broke off when he was rolling it into his, into his vehicle. And he brought it home into his garage, or into his basement, actually, and he disassembled it and totally restored it from the frame up, piece by piece by piece, over like five years. And now he's super proud of it. He takes it to motorcycle shows and all the stuff those guys kind of do. But I think it's this perfect image, right? Here's this thing that is so cool, so unique, so valuable, Right? And yet it's just worthless. It's just, it's just pointless. What can you possibly do with a rusty old rotten motorcycle? Besides piece it out and nail it to the wall at Applebee's, right? <laughs> it's worthless, and yet it's inherently valuable to the person who has the eye to see its value. Who has the eye to see through the rust and cobwebs and mud and dirt and go, holy cow, that's a Harley Davidson knucklehead. <laughs> I, I'm going to find out later that's not actually what this thing is called and it's going to be really embarrassing. <laughs> the knucklehead is not, that's not a motorcycle, you're an idiot. <laughs> you get what I'm saying though. You see through the dirt and the grime and you see the preciousness and you do the work and the sacrifice and spend the money and sweat and do all the labor required to draw this thing out of ruin. Beloved, is this not what your Jesus has done for you? And he met you in your muck and your mire and your sin and your death. And he gave of his time and his blood and his sweat and his resources to buy you, have you, and restore you. Has not your Jesus seen in you the value of the image of God and paid the price to have you and, and promised you that one day you will stand with him in perfection? Beloved, this is the kingdom. The kingdom is restoration work. And we have been called into it. We have been called into that. And so when we sit around and argue over who's the greatest, maybe that's what they're arguing over, or we sit around on our butts and worship comfort, we miss the work of the kingdom. We miss the call of our Jesus. We miss the work of restoration. Beloved, there are glorious ruins surrounding you right now. And Jesus has given you the tools to join with him in that restoration. I'm going to end with this quick story. Um, if you guys 
I'm sure we've all heard of Mother Teresa, right? The, the Catholic lady in Calcutta who loved and served a ton of people, and she's super famous. There's a, a, a Methodist kind of theologian slash like political activist, a guy named Shane Claiborne, who tells a story about going to work with her for the summer back in the 90s. And so he, college kid from the, the deep south, and he gets on a plane and goes out to Calcutta, India, and he volunteers with the Sisters of Charity for a summer. And so a Mother Teresa, who doesn't speak English, assigns him to work in their hospice called the House of the Dead and the Dying. And the hospice is built into this old repurposed Hindu temple. It's still there. You can Google it. You can look at pictures of it. And it's simply a place where people can go and die with dignity. That's all it is. People who are homeless, people who are terminally ill, people who at that time were considered untouchable by the the cultural standards of the larger land. They can go here and they can die while being loved and served and taken care of. And so this, this white college kid from the South gets sent to go work in this hospice for the summer. And he talks about how how, how much tension he felt between the way the sisters treated the volunteers and the way the sisters treated the patients. And he would talk about being in line to get lunch in the cafeteria. Like, hey, can I get an extra biscuit? And they'd be like, no, that's wasteful. And they would just like, like just pinch like every bit of time and every penny with all their volunteers. And yet when they would go into the hospice and they would serve the people who were dying, they would just lavish them with food they couldn't even eat. And he asked at one point, like, essentially, why are you doing this? You have college kids who are really hungry, and, and you have people who are dying that can't even eat that food. And they just go, well, you're an idiot. How do you not see that? When we're serving you, we're just serving a college kid who's here to experience this. But in that room, we're giving Jesus dinner. Of course we give him extra gravy. Of course. And, and, and he talks about how over the entrance to the building the volunteers would walk through is this sign that said, when you, when you enter this house, serve with excellence. For here you serve Jesus in his most distressing disguise. Beloved, Jesus told us he came into this world not for the well, but for the sick. Healthy people don't go, well, they do in the United States. Healthy people don't need a doctor, the sick do. Jesus came into this world to tell glorious, worthless ruins how precious and valuable they are. And through his sacrifice and his pain and his blood and for his glory, he buys them and restores them. This is our Savior. Who who when we join in that work, when we, when we love the things that God loves, when we serve the people that God serves, when we sacrifice as our Jesus has sacrificed, we are loving Him. We are glorying Him. We are welcoming Him. Beloved, let us be a people who welcome our Jesus. Jesus, you are so good to us. You love us with such ferocity. God, I don't, I don't understand because I don't have the eye for it. 
I don't see what you see in me. And I don't see what you see in this world because when I, when I look around, I see a lot of terrible things. And when I look in my own heart, I see a lot of terrible things. And yet, Jesus, you, you see us as somehow worth your work, your blood, your life. Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to see this world as you see it. That we would look and we would see around us as, as the world declares people and groups and cultures and tribes worthless, that we would see them through your eyes. We would see their value and we would see your love for them and we would see you. That we would welcome and love and serve as though it's you. That our dinner tables and living rooms and our schedules would be open and welcoming to you. Our finances and our plans and our relationships would be open and welcoming to you. And God, in that, may you receive the glory. Jesus, we love you. Make those words true. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.